turning your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We are in the 43rd chapter. We're going to begin with verse 22. You know, last week we, we looked at Reformation. Reformation is when God reforms our hearts, where He, he renews our hearts. This is usually what I would consider probably that moment in time when you realize that you're, where you're, the path you were on, you, that you were a sinner, and that God has touched you. You hear about the gospel. You hear the gospel, and it changes you, and you decide you want to begin to follow Christ. That's the reforming of our hearts. That's what's called the Reformation. The, the Reformation acts that we think about is we think about, obviously, the one started by Martin Luther, where it reformed the church and where Protestantism came from. But in that case, God is reforming in our hearts this deep passion and clarity of His purpose for us. So what happens is, after a period of time, uh, you know, as we know, you know, how many of us can buy a new car and drive it forever and never have to do anything to it? I mean, ideally that'd be great, but we don't. We have to revive some things. We have to change some things. So we're going to examine revival today. And I, and I think for the most part, um, many of us, I mean, I, be, I pray for revival all the time. I, I want revival. I want revival in my life. I want revival in the church. I want revival in your lives. I want revival in our communities, in, in our country. As a society, as a church, as believers, we're all, I think we're wanted, the, but the, there's a danger in wanting it so much that we're willing to make it happen with our own actions. Now, I know if you're like me, I mean, I, I, I remember growing up in the Nazarene church, we had revival. We had revival week where a, a, somebody would come in and they'd speak to us for a whole week. Every night we'd do worship. That, that's not the revival I'm talking about. Well, I'm talking about, and we're gonna, I'm going to explain what revival is, what it has been throughout the centuries, and also what its result is, because that's actually what Isaiah 43, where we're going to be starting, is about. But see, the thing about it is, is revival, its source is not us. It's not what we do that, that brings revival into the church. A true, the true source of a true revival is the Holy Spirit. Now, as the word replies, obviously, the, a true revival will revive the heart of the believer whose heart has grown cold. Has heart has, you know, we have a tendency to to get used to the way normal things are. So what happens is the Holy Spirit steps in, shakes things up a little bit, redirects us to God, revives us, refocuses us. But the thing about this is the Holy Spirit does not only do this for the benefit of the person he's reviving. He does this for the benefit of the church, the whole body. And the goal of revival is to refocus, reinvigorate the followers of Christ to fulfill God's purpose here on earth. You know, when we, when we believe, we begin the process of, of working towards fulfilling that, pro, pro, that, that what God has for us, the purpose he has for us. And sometimes we just, you know, it's too easy to get back into a rut. So revival gets us out of that. And while personal revival benefits the person, a true revival will benefit the kingdom. And this is why I am very hesitant to call what is occurring down at Asbury University a revival a, a, that I'm thinking about on the big scope or what some have called it the third great awakening. And I'll explain to you why. 
Now, I'm not saying there's not something going on, and I'll talk about that too. But what usually happens is a revival usually starts when somebody has been sharing the law. Now, understand, that doesn't mean they're preaching from the Old Testament. In fact, what happened at Asbury, they were preaching. The preacher got up, and, and it was just a normal worship service, nothing spectacular about it. In fact, there was nothing spectacular about the preacher. He, he, he walks up to the podium, and he, he seems kind of nervous. And he, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a reverend. He's been ordained. But it's just very, very laid back and relaxed. But he was preaching on the book of Romans. And Romans is all about the law. So from there, what happens is the, the law is taught, and then people repent. So what happened is they, they did their normal. They do this three times a week. He preached. They left. And some people said, you know, I'm, I'm not done yet. I, I want to go back. So they came back, and they started repenting. People started coming down to the altar and confessing their sins and repenting. I mean, confessing them out loud and repenting. And from there, when, when we repent, when we hear the law, and we realize how far we've drifted from God, and we repent, then our lives are changed. And everything in the church gets energized in a true revival at once. Teaching gets better. Worship gets better. Evangelism happens with, with, with passion. Worship. We get more effective results in what we do. People focus on social issues with a huge amount of passions, Passion, but also with kindness and love. Everything changes. All the things we value as a Christian, you know, the holiness of Scripture is lifted up. The holiness in our lives is lifted up after a revival. Social conscience is both loving and rigorous. There have been many times that there have been personal revivals. Okay, and that's one of the things I, I want, we got we to say. We do not have enough information yet to say that's what's happening at Asbury now has spread to some other colleges is a what we would call a true revival. It may be a personal revival. It may be a local revival. But to say it's going to spread throughout the whole church, we don't know that yet. In fact, we don't even know if the people who walked up there and repented have changed their lives. We don't know. Because the revival is just part of it. That's the first beginning of it. The question is, what's going to happen from here going forward? And that's why we have to wait and see. I'm not saying it didn't happen. It's not happening. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. What I am, I, we've got to be careful because there will be those who will come in and try to usurp it. And it's already started happening. Um, it also did. It also weighed very heavily on the town because this is a small town, and it was four or five times more people than they were should have had in town. The police, they had to shut it down. As far as, you know, at the college, only college-age students can come to the one at the college now. They have another, another off-site at a bigger, bigger locality for that. But there have been times of local change and personal revivals that led into what would be called a great awakening. I've actually heard that said about this, and I'm like, it's too early. So I'm going to share with you, because maybe you don't, you maybe not have heard, you may have heard of the Great Awakening, but you don't know what the results have been of that. And it's not until many years later that we realize that that was the start, and this is what happened from it. The first Great Awakening 
um, happened between 1720 and 1740 in the British American colonies. Now, part of it had started in Europe in the later part of the 17th and 18th century. But what it did is it revitalized the American colonies, religion in the American colonies. Some would even argue that part of the Great Awakening is the reason for the revolution. Liberty, freedom. But it, it pushed back on the idea of the enlightenment of what's called rationalism. That everything, everything that you can see, you can rationalize it that by science. Okay? So it, it pushed that back. That was the first enlightenment. Then there was the second Great Awakening that began in the 1790s. And what that was very similar. It was a revival in people's hearts. They refocused on scripture. And what happens is we have a revival and things begin to change. And actually it was after the second Great Awakening that we have the founding of colleges, seminaries, and mission societies. We, what we have today in our society with missions and, and with some of the Christian colleges, now understand, Harvard, Yale, they were all started as Christian colleges, and they're far from that now. But the idea of a Christian college, sending people to a college to learn to share the gospel and to be preachers, it was, it was foreign up until that point in time. And now all these colleges are started after the Second Great Awakening. So you see, there's a revival in the people, and what it does is it leads to a change in the society. So I think it's way too early to call what's happening in Kentucky either a revival or the Great Awakening until we see what the results are. I'm praying that it is a revival and that it leads to a Great Awakening. But we have to ask the question, is revival occurring? It seems like people are having personal revivals. And I think it's great. But again, we need, we, Scripture tells us that, number one, we're supposed to test the spirits. But it also says we're not supposed to quench the spirit. So we have, to, we have to look at this with eyes wide open. You know, why is this serpents gentle as doves? Don't, I'm not criticizing anything they're doing, that, that what they did down there, how they started. It, it seems just what it's supposed to be. It's the right way it's doing. The people who are, are running it are not, you don't know their names. They're not the ones on TV. They're not the ones on YouTube. The people who have started it, the students who have started it, they don't want any publicity. They just want this to continue. So everything looks right, but we've got to wait. People are having personal revival experiences, and I pray that that happens everywhere. I pray that it spreads to us and all the churches. And it leads to further life change and a change in the church because we need it. Our society needs it. But we can't have it and then just go back to the way it was. It's got to be real. We shall wait and see. And we need to continue to pray for true revival. And that brings us to Isaiah. Because as God is realigning us with his purpose, and he's revigorating us with his life, and he's doing this so that the purpose of doing this, the purpose of revival, of reformation and revival, is so that you and I become living proof of who God is. Because unless you, unless you get everybody into a church or to a place and, and share the gospel with them, they're, they're all, most, of, most of the time, the only gospel people are going to see are you and me. So the whole idea is let's, let's, God's going to 
revive us so that we can be living proof that God alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. It's God alone who should be at the center of our lives. It's the songs we sang this morning. All we need is Him in Christ alone. That's it. So we're going to look at revival in our verses today. Like we did last week, we're going to look at a problem, we're going to look at the remedy, we're going to look at the reason, we're going to look at the outcome. So let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 43, starting with verse 22. This is what God says. He says, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me to your sheep for, brought me to your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. See, what we have if, when there's a revival, there's got to be this period of time where there's, there's, it's not going the way it's supposed to go. That's why it's, it's happened over and over again. You see, to worship God is a privilege for us, and it can change our lives. But see, what happens when it gets misdirected? What happens when our worship becomes the focus of our worship? God's not saying that people are not worshiping Him. That's not what He's saying in these verses. What God is saying is their worship was not about God. God looked and he, he searched the very core of their worship, which is their, where their heart is. Their heart's in the wrong place. And he found it very, very lacking. It's like going through the motions. You know, how many of us do that? I, I'll admit, I've had it where I've just... I walk into church on Sunday morning, and I know what I got. I got A, B, C, and D I got to do, and I do that, and I, make it, and I make it through, and by the end, I'm like, was it any different? Did anything change in me? Did, did it matter that I, that I sang? Did it matter that I worshiped? And when we do that, when that is what our worship becomes, we weary God. See, worship should lift up our spirits. But when we just go through the more motions, it just becomes worthless. It doesn't do anything for us. When, when, when I was, uh, after I had the big C word, I'm not going to say it because my videos will be taken down if I use the word. When I had the big C word, I lost taste and smell. And I just recently got it back. So it's been over a year, almost a year since I've, had, I've lost my, this, my sense of taste and smell. I, I didn't really care to eat. Nothing tasted good. It'd be, it's like eating nothing. And I knew I needed to. Believe me, I didn't. I lost some weight, but I didn't, you know, <laughs> I didn't starve because I did eat. But the things I enjoyed, I didn't enjoy anymore because I couldn't taste them. And that's, that's what our worship becomes when we don't focus on God. When we focus on us and what we can do and what we are, it, 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 it doesn't taste right. And God says it wearies him. It's like, why are you doing this? See, worship becomes, should be a source of our grace. 
We should feel the grace of God flowing through our worship. We have the honor of standing before the creator of the universe and singing songs to him about him. We are bringing him glory, which is his ultimate passion and purpose for us, is to bring him glory. Many times it becomes worthless for him. So when we enter into a time of true worship of God, our hearts get revived because the, it's not because of what we're doing, it's because of what Christ did on the cross. Think about, you know, when Jesus, you know the story, when Jesus was at the well and the Samaritan woman comes up to him, and of course he's trying to, he's trying to be rather direct with her and she tries to detract him for to, you know, you Jews say you worship there and we worship on this mountain. And, and Jesus knows, obviously knows what she's doing. So in, in John 4, he tells her, he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is looking for worshipers to worship in spirit and truth. And I'll explain what that means. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So true worship must be in the spirit. And what that means is it's engaging our whole heart. It's engaging us from our very core. Because without a heart, a passion, there's no worship in the spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to have passionate songs sung that make us cry. and It doesn't even mean that we need to... I've said this before. It doesn't mean that we need to be singing out and be dancing around. That, that's not what it is. Because what matters is the heart. You could sit there in worship and not even, not even say a word, not even sing a word, but in your heart, you are pouring it out for God. So it's not about the physical that we're doing out here. That, that doesn't mean that we all should just stand here and not sing. If, if we are truly feeling that about God, we will open up and sing if God leads us to no matter what we sound like. But then it also, it, it doesn't have to be that. It's a matter of the heart. And that's what he means by in the spirit. We must come to worship with humble and contrite hearts. I mean, we, we need to know that our heart is, is broken and, and, and wrong and we need God. And, we, and worship kind of helps us getting into that point where we're, we're worshiping the way we should. And we need to love God with abandon. But our, our worship also must, to be, must, must, must be in truth. We, we cannot sing false theology and expect that to honor God. That's why, why I won't do Bethel music anymore. Great songs, great melodies, but some of the words, there's problems with them. Theological problems with them. And not just, I'm not just, not just because I, don't, I have a problem with them. No, people I respect, theologians I respect, say, mm, there's a problem with these songs. Not all of them, but many of them. But if I sing some of their songs, and, not all, and, and, and I don't sing others, unless I give you a list, you may be, you start, start listening to all their songs, and I'm like, I'm the shepherd. I'm supposed to keep you from wandering away. So we don't do Bethel songs. We don't do Hillsong songs for that reason. We must worship in truth. Our worship must honor God. It's not even about style. It's about the words and the heart. Worship in spirit without truth is shallow. 
and can be overly emotional. And if we worship in truth without spirit, it's dry. See, our worship comes from an appreciation and a knowledge of God that we find in His Word. The more we know about God, the more we can appreciate Him. That's why we, we got to be careful. That's why I'm, I'm careful to criticize any of the people involved in down in Kentucky. I don't know them. I don't know their hearts. They very well could be being revived. I'm praying that, 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 that their repentance is valid and it changes their life. I can't judge them because I'm like them. And we must be careful. If you want to judge someone, you better know them. And you better know them really well. The more we know about God, the more we appreciate Him. And when we appreciate Him more, the deeper our worship goes. And the deeper our worship goes, the more God is glorified. And God alone deserves glorification. And that's what God is going to talk about here in verse 25 of Isaiah 43. He says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions. Why? For my sake. For His sake. God, God doesn't, God doesn't g- forgive your sins because of you. He give, forgives your sins because of Him. And that's what He says here. And I will not remember your sins, which is pretty amazing considering that God is all-knowing, and yet He doesn't remember our sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. He wants again, He wants to reason with us. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. You, you think your life is what it should be. You don't need God or, or you, can, you can have God in the world too. He says, prove it to me. Show me. He says, your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. He's talking about your first father being Adam. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. See, what God is doing here, He is identifying Himself as our burden carrier. He is the one who takes away our sins. He took our sins, He put it on Christ on the cross. He carries our burdens. It's God who blots out our sins. It's not me. I can't blot out my sins, no matter how much I try to hide them. And it wasn't for my sake. It wasn't for our sake. It was for His sake. Because of Him, because of who He is. He gives us grace, un merited favor, which means you don't deserve it. And he gives it to us, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done on the cross. There's something inside us, something deep inside us that desires grace. And what we usually do, we, we get it, we try to get it by justifying ourselves. So what does God do? He says, come, reason with me. Justify yourself before me. Prove it to me. I, I can't imagine going in front of God and trying to prove that my way of living on my own, with my own ideas, is better than his. What a fool to think that we could do that. So he invites us to come. But our argument is that we deserve mercy, and our argument is that there's something within us that deserves grace, when the reality is we don't deserve mercy, and we do not deserve grace. 
And this is what some churches are doing when they elevate man to a place of godhood. There are some churches who teach that we could become gods. No. We will be like God. We mean we will have some of his attributes. We are to live like Christ. He's God. But we will not be God. We will be, we will be, we are so far different from God. There's only one Yahweh. There are other Elohim, but there's only one El, only one Yahweh. The argument that there's anything worthy of grace, grace within us is empty. And what it does is it leads to self-righteousness. And what do we deserve for our self-righteousness? utter destruction. This, these words that are used here in Hebrew, this word for utter destruction, they're the same words that Joshua is told to do when he's told to go in and completely destroy the people. When he's told to put that, that, that city to utter destruction, you, and all the time it's always a city that was touched by the Nephilim from Genesis 6. It is. You can check. It's every single time. He's told to destroy some of these Canaanite nations because God wants them utterly gone. It's the same word, and that's what you and I deserve. But when we turn the grace of worship into drudgery and it wearies God, we deserve what the Canaanites got. Death, no hope of salvation, complete destruction, separation from God. But see, thankfully, I say it doesn't end there. It doesn't stop there. God doesn't leave us in this state of utter destruction. He doesn't walk away from us and turn his back on us. No, what he does is he he comes to us in our lost state and he begins to work in us. He calls us. He pleads with us, come to me. Come. Confess. Because see, when we confess our sins, we are admitting that we were wrong. Anybody who comes to me and says, I don't have any sins to confess, <laughs> sorry, you do. In that statement, you have now sinned because you think you're good enough. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none of us who are without sin. Paul, who, who granted, he, he killed a lot of Christians early on in his, his life, but even after that, he was forgiven. He still says he's, he is the greatest sinner of all. comes to us in our lost state and begins to do his work. Paul, in fact, talks about this in Romans 5.8. He says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't wait until you and I said, oh, well, we're wrong, God. You know, you can forgive us. No, he had already died. He died for us when we were still sinners. So that was the problem. The problem was we are weary, and that's the problem today. We weary God. But there's a remedy. Isaiah 44 says, Now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Again, it's God who's doing this. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, which means beloved one. 
whom I have chosen. What we got here, you know, before this, in 43 leading up to this, man, that's pretty, that's pretty dire news. God wants us to reason with us, but he's going to utterly destroy us. Wow, that's, that's kind of depressing. But God wants to reassure us. He wants to reassure Jerusalem and the Israelites. He wants to reassure us. We are his servants. We're chosen by God, created by God. We've all been formed by God in our mother's womb. He wants to help us. He says, you know, it's kind of, it'd be like a parent who, who chastises their child for doing something wrong and never shows them how to do it right. Just punishes them. That's not our God. He says, I, come reason with me. I'll show you. I'll show you the right way. He doesn't want us to be unsure of him. He doesn't want us walking around wondering if he loves us or not. Wondering if he's going to do good or going to do evil to us. He wants us to walk confidently in his grace. That's why I struggle with people who, who, who say, I don't think God loves me. John 3.16 says he loved the world. He loves all of us. He died for us. He sent his son to die for us. He loves us. Usually if we don't feel that he loves us, it's because we are blocking him. What, you know, we need to look at our lives. What in our lives is keeping God from us? Is it a sin? Okay? Is it a sin that's, or is it possible that God is intentionally allowing us to feel distant for a reason? We talked about that when we talked about Hezekiah. When the, when the Babylonians came, um, we've, we've, theologians believe, and I believe, God stepped back from Hezekiah. He was still there, but Hezekiah, he stepped back and said, okay, Hezekiah, you do what you're going to do. I'm going to show you that you're, what you're doing is wrong. God allows us to, walk, to go our own merry way at times to teach us. Because he wants us to walk confidently in his grace. Paul, again, in Romans, he tells us, he says, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Oh, our sins can keep us from communicating with God and keep us from hearing God, but he doesn't leave us. He's constantly there calling us, wanting us to come back to him, come back to me, come back to him. Right here, the Holy Spirit works on our hearts. That's called guilt. Bad word today. People don't like to hear that. I don't want to feel guilty. I don't either. Then don't sin. Or if you do sin, repent, and you no longer feel guilty about that sin. But you know what? The thing is, I have to live a life of repentance. Lord, forgive me today for the things I've done wrong, for the people I've unintentionally hurt. Back in verse 28, God says that he will profane the princes of the sanctuary. Uh, by the way, that's the priests. <laughs> wow. The priests who should have known better don't. So God's going to hold them even more accountable. And he's going to give Israel up to utter destruction. But then he's going to turn that profaneness. That he's going to profane them. He's going to, he's, going to, he's, going to, he's going to punish them worse. But he's going to turn that into an outpouring. 
Because in verse 3, this is what he says. This is why he doesn't want us to walk around doom and gloom, afraid of what the future holds for us. He says, For I will pour water on a thirsty land, and the streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. What happens in the desert after a rainstorm? I mean, I've, we've had times here where we've had drought, and, and I've gone out and I've poured water into, into my garden, and it's just like, it's gone. It sucks it in. So I have to pour more on it. Okay? But what happens, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of a, of a, of a desert after it rains. Because it doesn't rain very often, maybe part of one day in many deserts. What happens is it comes to life. It blooms. Animals start to come out that you never knew were there. Flowers will bloom in one day until the next day it dries up again. What was once dry and dead becomes full of life. And what God is saying here, he says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land. And what happens when he does that? We get saturated with his presence. Now, I want you to understand, there are some people out there that are saying, well, there's a special, you know, down at Asbury, that's a special place, a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit happens only there. That's a lie. Because (laughs) Scripture tells us, wherever two or more are gathered, I am there. Revival can happen anywhere. There are at least two people who believe in Christ and are there for the same purpose. Revival can happen here this morning. It doesn't have to be a location. It's about the heart. Because God will pour himself into us and we feel his presence even more. He's been there, but he pours himself into us. When he does this, we become saturated with it. It's overflowing. God has a special tenderness for us. He wants to do that. He longs to pour his Holy Spirit into us for our lives to be changed, for us to glorify him and for the world to see who he is. We see this in John 7, in Jesus, in his encounter, it was on the last day of the feast, the great day, a great day, Jesus stood and cried, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that's why we talk about a revival is is gauged by the results of it. So I'm thirsty, I'm dry, my life is is just dying. And what do I do? I find Christ and and I renew, God renews my heart in a a personal revival. And what he does is he pours himself into me to a point that I'm overflowing with water. Jesus is the water of life. And in that overflowing, out of my heart, living water flows. So what happens? I go to this person. I go to that person. And I'm pouring water, the living water, into them. The Holy Spirit's been working on them, and he's, he's opening them up. And, and it begins to be a great awakening. Evangelism occurs. See, if you and I were walking in a desert, and we're thirsty, What do you think we're going to be looking for all the time? We're not going to say, oh, look, isn't that a cool cactus? No, we're going to be thinking, is there water in that? Where can I find water? If we haven't had anything to drink, where can I find water? Where can I be refreshed? 
And, and as thirsty believers, we should love the Word of God so much that when we hear it, when we hear, hear it spoken, when we hear it preached, that we long for more. We want more. I don't know about you. I've been, I, I work outside a lot in the summertime, and I get hot. And you, you know, I get wrapped up in what I'm doing, and I forget to drink water. Until I'm like, man, I'm just so thirsty. So I drink, and I'll, I'll drink like a full 64 ounces of water. It's not enough. I need more. That's how we should be about the Word of God, about God Himself. We should want more. We want more of God in us, in our lives. Can we say that? Can we say that, we, that if we that we're going to want God, the Word of God, to be preached more and more into us? Do we thirst for His Word? It's a sad state when we don't hunger and thirst for the Word of God. Because his desire is to pour his spirit in us and upon us so that we will be fully satisfied. At Pentecost, God poured out his spirit and unleashed a river of the Holy Spirit upon the world that was full of guilt and sin. And he wants to pour out a wave after wave of his grace to us today. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I feel at times today that the spirits, the Holy Spirit has has ebbs and flows. There are days when, man, I feel it. There are days I don't. And, and if I really go back and analyze it, on the days I don't feel it, it wasn't that God wasn't there. It's that I wasn't there. But God wants to pour out his grace on us. We need to get down on our knees and we need to pray for God to visit us again. And what I mean by that, we need to see him. We need to put aside all the things of our lives that's keeping us from, from sensing the Holy Spirit in our lives and we need to put them aside and we need to focus on Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is light. My burden is easy. We need to become alive again in Christ. And see, when that happens, we're no longer going to be sitting on the fence. We're going to proudly proclaim who we are in the Lord. We can't not share it with the world. That's why I'm waiting for that with what's happening today. I'm waiting for a huge evangelism experience to happen all over the world. And not just in the church. I mean, it's great if, if the church gets revitalized, but if the church gets revitalized and never does anything to the world, what good is it? Granted, those in the church are experiencing something great and, re, and re, revitalizing their life, but until you share it, it's kind of like, you know, you never really know how to do something until you can train someone else to do it. Then you know you know it. It's the same thing with evangelism. Until you can sit down and you can share the gospel. And what I mean by that is you don't have to, you know, theologically know all the details of the gospel. No, you need to know the story. How did God change your life? And you need to be able to share that with somebody in your own words. Simple. And then you know that you love it and you know it and it's who you are. And that's what God wants to do. In verse 5 of Isaiah 44, it says, This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write it on his hand. The Lord's... And name, he right on his hand, the Lord's. I belong to, to God. Kind of reminds me of the mark of the beast, which says, I don't, I belong to the world. God says, no, I'm going to write it. You're going to write my name on your hand. I belong to the Lord. The Lord's. And the name himself 
and name himself by the name of Israel. Sinners become believers. This is what the grace of God does at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's what happened at Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? Well, the disciples are in the upper room. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin speaking in, they are speaking their language, but everybody hears it in another language, their own language. And then they say what? What do we need to do? And then Peter stands up and gives them the gospel. Repent, brothers. Repent. And that's where it begins. Now, why does this happen? Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. That's Christ. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. The reason that God pours out his spirit upon us is to show us that he is God. God doesn't want to kill our joy. In fact, he wants to give us more joy. He wants to create in us a joy unspeakable. I know, those of you who know hymns, there's in, the mind, in your mind, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Some song that first came to my head. I, mean, I grew up with the hymn, so that's what it does. But I, I think about that. What is that? What is a joy unspeakable? And it's, but it's full of glory. Well, glory for who? Glory for God. He wants to create in us this joy that can only be found in Him as our Redeemer. See, see, the satisfaction we get from the things of this world, which are our idols, are insufficient compared to the joy and the peace we have in Christ. So we need to pull aside the foolishness of this world and we need to embrace the joy that comes by knowing Christ. And it's not just knowing Christ. I mean, we, we say that, but we understand that it's not just the word we're using. To know Christ is to love Christ and to be with Christ and to desire Christ and to have him as the center of your life. The demons know Christ. The demons believe in God. And they shudder. Why? Because there's no good to them. They know who he is. Verse 7. Who is like me? There's no one like God. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Again, we get this same picture as we had in other verses previous weeks. You know, can you foretell the past? Can you say what happened in the past? Can you foretell the future? Only God can do it. You can't. Nobody can. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God wants to pour his spirit upon us so that he would not, we would not fear what's going to happen in this world. This world is going to get worse. He doesn't want us to fear it. You think, you think fear was bad two years ago in 2020? Yeah, it was terrible. You could feel it. And I spoke against it whenever I can. I'm like, don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. God is sovereign. He is in control. If it's your day, it's your day. And if it's not that that takes you, something else will. Live for his glory, no matter what. Don't be afraid. He doesn't want us wallowing in our sin and separation because he has life for us. The idols of this world, the things that we clog our lives with in this world, 
kind of clog up the inflowing of the Holy Spirit. When we put our heart, it's not that they're bad in themselves, believe me. Um, cell phones aren't bad. iPads aren't. Technology is not bad. It, it, it's an inanimate object. It's not bad in and of itself. But when we focus our heart on that instead of focusing on God, then it becomes bad. This is why repentance is the first step of revival. We've already seen in previous chapters the futility of idols. We're not, I'm not going to read verses 9 through 20 because I, I know we, we, we like to be out of here by, you know, before 1 or 2 o'clock. <laughs> I could go on and on going through verses 9 through 20. And we've, reiterated, we've talked about this before, how futile idols is. I, I, I want you, I want you to, to read that sometime. But, I mean, I don't want to read it now because we've done it twice now. We've talked about the futility of idols. The idols we place can't save us. They cannot satisfy us. Why? Because they're man-made. They're in reality no use to us in the long run. There's only one who we can depend on. So we come to the outcome. So it says in verse 21, Remember these things, O Jacob, Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sin like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. See, what God has promised us goes way beyond anything we could ever think. Paul tells the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What God has prepared for us completely surpasses anything this world can give us. All the idols of this world that distract us are nothing compared to what God has planned. But God has to renovate our heart and we need to be revived. We need to repent. And then we need to celebrate Christ. God alone is our Redeemer. We have to return to Him and in order to do that, we must be repentant. Let go of our idols. Remake our lives about being about Christ alone. We don't deserve the grace we get. We can't control it. But he pours it out freely to us, to our empty hands, if we have open faith in him. And that is the way to revival. Mark, in the book of Mark, Jesus had said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Why should we lose ourselves to gain God? Because he's worth it. He is overflowing with salvation and grace if we just humble ourselves and repent. And that repentance leads to a reviving of our hearts which ultimately leads to the reviving of the church. I want you to know that I don't... I grew up in a church where we had an altar call every, every at least every Sunday night, because we were there Sunday nights, Thursday nights, Sunday morning. And I don't want, I don't want anybody to, to repent just because, you know, the pastor said so. 
I want you people to repent because they know the Holy Spirit's talking to them and telling them, I need to repent. And repentance means you don't go back to it. You don't repent and then go back and still live the same life. It needs to change your life. We're going to sing, but I want you to know that the altars up here are always open. Are always open. And you don't even have to come up here to repent. You can sit right where you are and you can repent. It doesn't have to be public. But I challenge you this week to, to seek God. And if as you seek Him, you'll see that there are places where we all need to repent and surrender. And it will change our lives if we truly do it.